The Guardian. Hello, this is The Business. I'm Edith Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, Goldman Sachs faces tough questions in the Senate. June 22 is the date of this email. Boy, that Timberwolf was one shitty deal. How much of that shitty deal did you sell to your clients after June 22, 2007? Mr. Chairman, I, I don't know the answer to that. While President Obama suffers a defeat as he aims for new financial reforms. A free market was never meant to be a free license to take whatever you can get, however you can get it. While the financial crisis was entirely predictable, and maybe even necessary. Actually, what's going to happen is the crisis is going to be moved around. It's, we already see it's being moved from the financial sector to the employment problem. It's being moved from the financial sector to the fiscal crisis of states, either, either states like California or Greece. And, ahead of the final leaders' debate, we ask which political party has the most convincing economic model. Everybody had sort of assumed that the golden egg would keep laying and they could ignore economics, and I think they're very embarrassed about that. This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio today, we have our economics editor, Larry Elliott, alongside Guardian columnist Julian Glover. We're also joined by David Harvey, professor at the City University of New York and author of a new book called The Enigma of Capital. He's also something of an internet phenomenon. His online course on Marx's capital has been downloaded more than a quarter of a million times. Is that true, David? It's near a million, actually. We'll come back to David Harvey's work in a moment. But first, let's go to Wall Street. This is The Business from The Guardian. It's a Senate hearing, but it looks promisingly like it might turn into a lynching. There are only so many houses, mortgages, shares of stock, bushels of corn or barrels of oil in which to invest. But a synthetic instrument has no real assets. It is simply a bet. The AC1 transaction was not designed to fail. AC and IKB were two of the most important clients to my desk. Goldman Sachs also had no economic motive to design the AC1 transaction to fail. Look what your sales team was saying about Timberwolf. Boy, that Timberwolf was one shitty deal. They sold that shitty deal. Mr. Chairman, this email was from the head of the division not the sales force. This Whatever was it was, it was a, it's, a the, internal, the, it's an internal Goldman document. This was an email to me in late June. Right. And you sold Timberwolf. No, no. You sold Timberwolf after as well. We did trades after that. Yeah. Okay. And it's the trades after. Some you, context. Yeah. Might be helpful. The context, let me tell you, the context is mighty clear. The top brass from investment bank Goldman Sachs have been marched up to Capitol Hill for hearing on their part in the credit crisis. The hearing comes in the light of a billion-dollar fraud investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission. We'll cross now to our Washington, D.C. studio, where we can speak to Michael Tomaski, who writes for The Guardian's comment pages. Michael, is this the pitchfork moment? Is this the point at which Main Street finally turns on Wall Street? Uh, Main Street is against Wall Street, according to a lot of polls that have been coming out in America just recently. Uh, yesterday, there was a Washington Post poll uh, that showed uh, 65% uh, of Americans surveyed uh, support some kind of financial reform and only 31% uh, oppose. What these hearings uh, before the Senate uh, by Goldman Sachs executives may do 
uh, is inflame that anger uh, even further. And, uh, and then the question will become whether that anger uh, can persuade some senators uh, to change their positions and be more supportive of the financial reform legislation that they're currently uh, negotiating. I believe in the power of the free market. I believe in a strong financial sector that helps people to raise capital and get loans and invest their savings. That's part of what has made America what it is. But a free market was never meant to be a free license to take whatever you can get, however you can get it. These are reforms that will put an end to taxpayer bailouts, that would bring complex financial dealings out of the shadows, that would protect consumers, and that would give shareholders more power in the financial system. Barack Obama's financial reforms, as you've just said, seem to run into quite a lot of trouble. Uh, they have, and uh, unsurprisingly, uh, uh, the proposals met with a united wall of Republican opposition, uh, just like on the health care bill, uh, plus one Democrat, uh, Ben Nelson of Nebraska, uh, whose motives a lot of people are speculating about today. He was also a, a pretty famous holdout on the health care bill for a long time until he finally voted yes at the end. Um, this legislation is not dead by any means. Uh, Democrats and Republicans will continue to negotiate, try to compromise. The deal, the, uh, the vote, excuse me, that was lost by the Democrats on Monday night uh, can be repeated. They can try to bring it up to the floor again for such a vote uh, and see if they can uh, twist Ben Nelson's arm and the arm of at least one Republican uh, to then uh, pass a procedural hurdle that they have to pass to try and make the legislation into law. So what do you think happens next? Uh, it'll be interesting to see the fallout from these hearings, uh, and that we can only uh, uh, tell after the hearings are done and, and, and how these guys did and, and, and what the spin is like after these hearings. But, uh, you know, I would expect that uh, I'm not wholly confident about this, but, but to some extent I would expect that at the end of the day, they will get a compromise on this legislation and pass it and make it law uh, for the simple reason uh, that unlike the health care bill, which wasn't very popular, uh, this is popular. Michael Tomaski there in our Washington studio. David Harvey, let's start with you since you teach in New York. What's the, would, you, would you agree that this might be a pitchfork moment? Uh, I don't think it is. Um... And it's for this reason, I mean, one of the ways I think of it, I think there's something I call the party of Wall Street, uh, which has a heavy, heavy presence in the Democratic Party. For instance, my own senator in New York, uh, Charles Schumer, raises massive amounts of money from Wall Street. And then, of course, there's the Republican Party. So well, whatever's going on in Congress is a debate within the party of Wall Street as to how to save face against this public reaction, which is indeed, as you say, getting louder and louder and louder. And I think one of the ways in which it's happening is, uh, of course, uh, the symbolic quality of these hearings is, uh, as I think your correspondent said, likely to inflame some of those those passions. But then what's going to happen is there's going to be backroom negotiations, which you're going to come out of this with something that the party of Wall Street wants. In other words, it's not going to be a bill which is going to really do the will of the people or be about the will of the people. It's going to be something acceptable to the big powers that be on uh, Wall Street. Remember, the, the name of Goldman Sachs is often 
called government sacks in the United States. How far can the party of Wall Street remain in power, though, if Goldman Sachs is not only being criticised in the press, but now has a fraud, a billion dollar fraud case against it? I think they can. Well, first off, I don't think the I don't think the the, the fraud case is going to actually work. I really doubt very much that there's very good legal grounds that it can work. And I think this, again, it's rather, large, largely symbolic as, as, as far as I can tell. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is the party of Wall Street generally lies low in times like this and lets everything brush over itself, but it's got the money. And, and they're still paying themselves bonuses. They've still got all the money to fund the, the, the political campaigns. And all they need to do is to get to one senator, for example, like Ben Nelson, and say, hey, we've got a big pot of money here waiting for you for your political campaigns. And there it is. Uh, you've got what you've, what you've got in the Senate. So I'm very, I'm very skeptical that actually this public anger is going to translate, as I said, into something that is going to be a very rigorous uh, control over the financial services industry. Larry Elliott, people are always talking about a transformative moment. This, the, this banking crisis gives us the, the moment we need to, to reform the banking crisis. But if you listen to what David Harvey's just said, that moment's not going to come. Well, I'm, I'm probably a bit more optimistic than, than David, partly because it has been done before. I mean, the party of Wall Street was there as the party of Wall Street in the 1930s, and it just took a little bit of, well, quite a lot of political will to, to challenge it. And what Roosevelt did was took on the party of Wall Street. And if Obama is doing the same, then all credit to him. I think that um, he is tapping into some real public resentment there. And I think the Republicans probably will buckle on this because there's midterm elections coming up this year. And I don't know whether it's going to be that good an idea for the Republicans to be on the wrong side of public opinion in this debate. If if, the, if it's two thirds, one third anti-Wall Street, then there's an awful lot of votes at stake here. So, I mean, I, I, I think if Obama sticks to his guns, he could actually force the Republicans to back down on this. And I, I, don't, I don't know the ins and outs of the Goldman Sachs case, but I mean, it suggests to me that this is going to rumble on for some months and fan the, the flames of public anger because you know, the, the idea of Goldman Sachs allegedly <coughs> selling instruments that it knew were um, you know, a bit dodgy and that people were going to make big losses on them, but it was going to make profits on himself. I, mean, I think it just really exemplifies in the public mind the fact that you know, these people are just looking after themselves. I mean, that they were just looking after their own interests and, and selling, a, selling a false dream to everybody else. And I think that's, that's going to play very powerfully in, in the US where the idea of playing by the rules is, is, is a big part of their national psyche. Julian Glover, uh, this is the we're in the middle of our general election over here. Uh, it's the first election against the backdrop of a banking crisis in a in a major Western economy. Um, where's the impulse for banking reform here? It's not coming from the public, and I, I think it's important to remember that whilst the parties and politicians are talking about it, and it is in manifestos, we, we're not sure whether they'll do anything after the election, there isn't really public anger against the banks. There's a much wider public anger against the way the country's been run an element of anger about the way that property and economic interest is distributed, um, a huge disillusionment with the political system. So people in Britain do not look to politics to reform economics. They don't trust politics either. Everything is discredited. But there certainly isn't a great public uprising saying we want a new economic model. They'd like the old one to work again. Um, Now, it may not work again, and it may work again up to a point with some reform. But I don't think this is a transforming moment in attitudes to capitalism or to the role of the state I think it is a moment when people are afraid and anxious. They don't want cuts. They don't want tax rises. They don't want personally to suffer for something they feel they didn't cause. But loads and loads of people in Britain did pretty well in the last 10 years. Loads of people want to buy property. This 
look at the weekend press. The, the, the Sunday Times still had its rich list, and it was reported with quite a lot of awe by the BBC. There wasn't a sense of horror at the kind of grotesque wealth that some of these people have got. There was almost admiration. So I don't think there has been a huge shift in public attitudes, and there certainly isn't one in the polls. There you go, David Harvey. It's not just vested interest. The public don't particularly want to reform capitalism either. I think, by the way, there's exactly the same cynicism about government in the United States. Even more so, I don't think anybody in the United States trusts Congress to do anything. There's some trust. Some There was passing trust in Obama, maybe. Yes, there was passing trust, but that's frittered past. away, rather. <laughs> it's very, 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 very past. So I don't... Uh, uh, again, and I don't think the parallel with the 1930s is exact because money didn't have the power in elections back then that it does have now. And I think that in the midst of this crisis, I mean, just two, three weeks ago, we, we saw five leading hedge fund uh, managers uh, pulling in personal remuneration of $3 billion each. Now, I mean, $3 billion in one year in the midst of a crisis. And they, of course, they were betting on, you know, they were shorting things. and Using, and, using taxpayers' money, I mean, yes, yes. using the bailout money and, from the government. And, and, and they're raking it in. And in, and in fact, the concentration of, of, of economic power in Wall Street in difficult times when other people don't have the power, the unions have less power, all, all the other, the people who really have amassed the power right now are, is the party of Wall Street. And to be sure, they, 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 they have to do something to assuage public opinion, and I'm sure there's a bill that's going to be passed. And the only interesting question is what kind of bill is it going to be and who's going to benefit from that? Bill? A difference but, in Britain. But, but, but if, if it's just a slap on the wrist, if, if Wall Street is left unreformed, if global capitalism, global finance is left unreformed, all we're doing here is actually stoking up the next crisis. All, all, all that, all that, if, unless something similar well, to what happened... Well, that's, that's actually what I believe. We are stoking up the I mean, next that, crisis. That, I mean, that's, that, that's what the consequence of this is. If, if Wall Street just carries on in the same old way, if the city carries on in the same old way, then we are going to have a much bigger crisis sometime down the road, and probably not that far down the road either. I mean, that's, that's the stakes we're playing for here. And you can already see signs of that. I mean, the biggest failed state in the world right now is the state of California. I mean, it is, if it was, if it was in the same in institutional situation as Greece is in, it would be in a worse situation than Greece. But of course, it has the underlying wealth it, to it, pay it, for it. It, it just refuses well, it, to impose the taxes because of well, the it has, of democracy it, that it has. Well, it has all the federal transfers. I mean, the social security payments come in from Washington and all those kinds of So it's got federal transfers, which prevent it going the but way But unlike of Greece. Greece, California has an economy that's worth saving. Yes. It makes some money well, and dominates around the world. Maybe, may, may but, but the, 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 plight of the U.S. states right now, fiscal plight. We have a fiscal crisis of U.S. states. But that's a reluctance of people to pay for the things they want government to do. Yes. And, and that's yes, a model that's, we also have in Britain, which is we have an election now, I think, where economic interest is always fundamental to politics and is again this time. But some of the economic interest is the public sector, the state interest, which is different to America. And here we have a lot of people whose prosperity, whose survival depends on government spending. And so that is a different kind of economic interest just from the party of Wall Street you described. Yes. And the conflict between those two is difficult because politicians are left paying for the public sector without wanting to impose the costs of the public sector mm -hmm. on the people mm -hmm. and without having built a broad economy that can support it. Which is how... And, and that maybe produced an ex-calamity in Britain rather, rather than... Um, one coming from the market. Well, gen generally, the crisis has moved from the private sector to the public sector, yes, hasn't it? Yes. The crisis has moved yes. from one of a debt crisis for individuals and companies to, to, a, de debt to a debt crisis of governments. Um, and essentially, the same sort of fantasy world of yes. economics exists now in the public sector as exists in the private sector, which you can carry on living beyond your means, which you can do for longer in the public sector than you can in the private sector, obviously. But there comes a point where the same economic realities, financial realities, kick in. And, you know, for Greece, they've kicked in. For Britain, they may work. And, and the test in this election is a political will to 
explain it. And as, as but no, we've one's, seen no, today, one's, no one's doing. No it. one's explaining that because it's very you know it's it's a hard message, isn't it? Hard message is that you know we, we've we've solved the immediate crisis, but in the long term, there has to be a payback. And that so pay- so Larry, I've got a cynic to the left of you and a cynic to the right of you, and you're now going to capitulate and be just as cynical as. No, I'm not being cynical at all. I'm not being cynical. I just I think that we can actually put in place a program of reforms that could could tame the financial interests and, and actually put it back in its cage. I think that's that's what's badly needed here. Um, but I don't think we can... Um, but hang on, I've heard one argument, which is that Wall Street's too powerful, or read I, here, Canary Wharf is too powerful, so you can't do very much about them because they've got a chokehold on politics. I don't believe And that. another argument on the believe... other side, which says the public aren't really that engaged. All they want is to be left alone. I don't think the public here is as engaged as it is in the states about Wall Street, partly because I think the expenses scandal actually deflected Washed that anger away. away from the yes. bankers to the politicians, which I think was really, really unfortunate for the economic debate. I mean, it's been great theatre and it was wonderful for the Daily Telegraph. But in terms of actually transforming the, the, the underlying reality of the system here, it was disastrous because it did mean that all that pent up anger got pushed towards duck houses and you know fish ponds or whatever it was and and, and washing up power whatever it was in the politicians was spending their money on second mortgages we, uh, and uh, in that in that crisis there is one strength to british politics there's many things wrong with it and we can talk about that forever but one strength is that candidates and parties don't spend all their time fundraising um, right. the tory party has got a lot of money from the city labor has got much less from the city and the lib dem is very little but even the tory um, national campaign budget is 18 million so we don't have that endless pressure on person to, as soon as you get elected to raise the money for re-election which is seems to be so devastating for the independence no, of the American it's, 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 uh, it really Congress. is I mean this idea that uh, we have democracy in the United States I, we have what I call the democracy of money and the Supreme Court just uh, in its judgment recently which protects it corporations yes. it's a shocking judgment that kind of says spending as much money as you like is a form of free speech i.e. money speaks I mean literally they're saying that and, and I think that's astonishing Okay, on that cheery note, let's end that discussion. For everything you need to know on all these discussions, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash business. So, David, on to your book, The Enigma of Capital and the Crises of Capitalism. There have been some people who predicted the global financial meltdown, but your position is that you weren't surprised by it. Why? Because uh, I spent a lot of my time talking about uh, what I would call the internal contradictions of capital accumulation and how crises are absolutely necessary for the survival of capitalism. It's, it's the way in which capitalism morphs into something different. So we went through a crisis in the 1970s and out came a different kind of capitalism. We're going into a different crisis right now, uh, which is a result of the way we came out of the last one in many ways. And what we're now doing is exploring new paths out. But as I think other people have been saying around the table, at this point, there is a real, real attempt to resume business as usual. And to me, that means that actually what's going to happen is the crisis is going to be moved around. We already see it's being moved from the financial sector to the employment problem. It's being moved from the financial sector to the fiscal crisis of states, either either states like California or Greece. And, And then there's an interesting question of where it's going to go next. And one of the arguments I try to make in the book is to look at the way in which capitalism shifts crises around, both between the form the crisis takes, but also the location of it. 
Um, like we we often think this is a this is a new situation, but when you look back, you say there was this humongous crisis in 1997-98 in East and Southeast Asia, but somehow it was contained. But there. the difference difference is between the, the late 90s Asian crisis is that that was on what you might call the periphery of of the capitalist system, and this well, is a crisis at the heart. That, of that's the capitalist hardly system. that's hardly the periphery. That's you know it's it. I, I mean, well, Wall, the, the the crisis in Wall Street is a, is a magnitude, yes, yes, an order of yes. magnitude. No, bigger. I agree. I agree. But if, again. If if you look back, you'll see a pattern of crises since the 1970s, the volatility of crisis formation. You had the debt crisis in Mexico. Mexico has been about three or four crises, Argentina, Russia, East and Southeast Asia. We've had, we've had crises tumbling all around us. And now it finally hit big time in the United States, although the United States has had its little crises, like the savings and loan problem, uh, the sort of Enron. crash, Enron and the, that crash. So, so, so we, we, we live in a crisis-prone world. And, and, and I was looking at it, and I actually wrote uh, around 2005, I said anybody looking at the aggregate data of the United States would say the United States is due for disciplining by the IMF. The trouble is that the U.S. is the IMF. And what was interesting to me was I was down in Latin America and the Brazilians were saying, yay, they finally got happening to them what the IMF did to us, you know, but it's happening to them this way. And, of course, do, it is do, big do, time. Do you think, David, that the system will be reinvigorated by the crisis? You're almost sort of having a sort of Schumpeterian <laughs> view, view of capitalism here, which is kind of unusual from a Marxist, really. You're sort of saying that we need, we need crisis to reinvigorate. I mean, my, some of the Marxists that, that I read suggest that essentially what's been happening in the last 30 years has been an attempt to put sticking plaster over a system that doesn't really work. Fundamentally bust. So, yeah. so you know, globalisation, yes, right. move, moving, moving production overseas is a way of trying to raise profit share, right. you right. know, in, in a time of declining profits. Financialization and moving away from manufacturing to the financial sector is a way of trying to raise overall profits in the economy. And essentially, these are just short-term fixes. And essentially, we're building up to some humongous crisis. I mean, I, is, think, is, I think, well, I, I don't know about building up to a humongous crisis, but uh, what I would say is I broadly agree with that analysis. And I kind of say the crisis form. If you look at the crises of the 19th century, if you look at the 1930s, you see the morphing into something different. Uh, and But now we're at a situation where it's less easy to get out of a crisis now than it was, say, last time around. And it's getting progressively more difficult to come out of a crisis for a very simple reason, which is that in order to come out of a crisis, you have to actually reinvigorate compound growth at at least minimum 3%. Sorry, explain what that means. Well, you know, you have to you have to grow. I mean, everybody says economic growth is good. And you say, well, how much economic growth? And if it's only 1%, people say that's too sluggish, 2%, uh, it's not very good, 3% is minimum, and it's great if we're doing 4 and 5. And, of course, if you're like China, we're doing 10. So everybody is saying the way out of this crisis is to grow. grow. The definition of the crisis is non-growth. So we've got to resume growth. And Obama kind of says we're going to be back to 3% by 2011. And Gordon Brown has said the same sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah, the same sort of thing. So how do you get 3% growth? Well, you need to have 3% investment, reinvestment. And that means right now, if you have a a global economy of around, you know, 50 trillion plus dollars, you've got to find new investment opportunities, profitable investment opportunities for $1.5 trillion of new investment. In in 20 years time, you're going to need to find $3 trillion worth of new investment opportunities. And part of my argument looking back, which is some of the things you're reading about uh, about what's, what's been going on, is that capital hasn't been able to keep its growth syndrome going. So instead of growing real things, what it does is it goes and grows fictions what like finance new like financial finance, products or, or it, it, it invests in assets 
So that, you know, an, an asset markets always have a Ponzi character. You know, I put money in property market, property prices go up. Other people say, hey, this is a good deal. I go in. So they always have this Ponzi character without, without, a, bon- without a Bernie Madoff at the top. But surely there are investment potentials in the emerging markets, aren't there? I mean, India's growing 8% a year. I mean, China's, China's growing 10%, 10% yeah. a year. I mean, it's essentially a Western economy. I agree there are some possibilities there. But actually, if you look at what's going on in China, the... Uh, um, uh, property prices in Shanghai doubled last year. In yeah, other words, they're going back into a property boom of exactly the sort that, that drove the, the U.S. crisis. And I'm very skeptical that the Chinese are going the but, right but kind David, of way. But David, that's Shanghai. I mean, if you the further west you go in China, the I, less developed it is. If you yes. go into villages in India, right. there's no way they look like Bombay. Yes. Well, this is, this is the, the point about China, that they, I mean, I argued this some time before, the Chinese are about the only ones who can really do a Keynesian, a real Keynesian policy, i.e. They, they've got infrastructural investment needed to integrate the whole economy. You're quite right, you know, integrating the rural areas and the north to the south and the east to the west, uh, a bit like the interstate highway system of the 1950s. And that's just the what they've States. done. They've just done that. that no, they're just doing that. Yeah. And, and, and they continue to do that. And, and, of course, it's a vast investment project and it's creating unemployment. It's creating employment and, and stabilizing what is a very difficult situation for them, which is how do you employ all of those people? So there's a big – so, so they're, they're, they're going gung-ho for that. But actually a lot of the investments, you worry about whether they're going to be productive in the long run or whether they're going to be white elephants and just, you know, sitting in the sky. Julian, just imagine any of the three main party leaders sat around the table in this discussion. What would they make of this? It's pie in the sky, isn't it? Well, they'd all want growth. And if you talk to any of them and – Certainly, if you talk to the shadow chancellors of the other parties, I think they want growth. They don't want cuts. It's, their, their dream is not to get elected to slash spending. Um, the Tory party would like the state to become smaller, but it would like it to become smaller by not growing as fast as the economy. Um, they haven't got a clue how to get it, and they're all terrified of India and China. They look at that, and they think, that's the future. That's the threat. We're living comfortable, well-funded, luxurious Western lives, and we don't really know if we're ever going to have the economic ability to support that into the future. And then they can't say that to the public. So it's, 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 it's an air of anxiety, I think. There's not, there's not a lot of confidence. Yeah, and I think that uh, in the United States, one of the big issues is the degree to which China can actually substitute the U.S. market by actually growing the internal market. And you see, and that's going to take a lot of hard work in China to do that. But actually, the share of wages in national income in China has been steadily descending, and they have to reverse that, which is what a Keynesian policy would do. And I think they can do that because they're not fearful of being accused of being communists or socialists, mm. as Obama is accused whenever he tries to do any, anything redistributive at all. So, Are you so, saying that Keynes works? I'm, well, I'm so, well, yeah, no, I think uh, this Keynes is quite an admission for Marxism. <laughs> no, I, no, no Keynes, Keynes can work on a temporary stabilization. It can't answer. How temporary is the, temporary? Uh, well, in the long run, we're all But no, I mean, look. Uh, capitalism stabilized around, if you like, a new model of development after the crisis of the 1970s. And it did so by this extreme volatility, both in terms of the flows of finance capital all around the world, the opening up of China, and of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. And, and, and it, it created a new model, if you like. Uh, and, and it wasn't because the politicians were sitting around kind of saying, hey, this is the new model we want. It was something that dynamically emerged. But now, we could, emerge, we could emerge with another kind of a, uh, model right now, which, frankly, if you look at the aggregate data, looks to me rather horrendous in terms of the fact the only way you could run it is by an autocratic regime like China. 
or like Downing Street. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty hard for politicians, A, to believe that they have the power to shape the economy. They don't feel they have the power to do very much at all. Right. They'd like to. Um, yes. And B, it's hard for them to engage with the public. David Cameron, in an interview the other day, made the fairly uncontroversial point that public spending is extremely high in certain bits of Britain and the private sector is not big enough. Um, that was taken to imply he wants to slash the state spending and not increase the private bit. Um, but in places like Northern Ireland, the private sector is now a well, small that was part e- of the I mean, economy. That was, that was economically illiterate. I couldn't understand why it was reported that way, really. Mm. I thought there was He may dislike that balance, but what, what then happens? How does, he, how does he change it? He hasn't got any tools to do it. So let me ask you two guys, how do you imagine 3% compound growth forever is going to go on? I couldn't answer that. Why not? But, but, that's, but that's what we're talking about. Larry, yeah. come on. And what would it mean environmentally? What would it mean socially and politically? Well, I, I, I mean, mean, I mean when, when capitalism was just, you know, kind of Manchester and Birmingham in 1750, that's one thing, compound growth, 3% forever. But now we're talking about everything's I going on there are in China po- and everything I think there are two points. Is, is 3% compound growth achievable? And it probably is more achievable than you think, I think, just because of technological changes and that, you know, you get new technological paradigms every, you know, every 40 or 50 years. So I think it probably is more achievable than you think. The second and more interesting question is, do we actually want 3% compound growth if we can achieve it? And is it, is it compatible with economic sustainability? I think that's a much bigger and more intractable question. I'm not sure it is. I mean, I think we have to, we, we have to think along two tracks here. One, can we achieve that that level of growth? Answer: We probably can. Two, is it, is it is it desirable if we can achieve it? Answer: It probably isn't. Now, why aren't we having a big conversation about these questions? We'll get well, you we back. Are we'll, we'll, well, we, we are having a conversation right now, but yeah. generally speaking, I don't hear a conversation. I mean, I, I I look at all this discussion going on around the election, and of course, nobody ever says anything about this kind of a problem. You you want to read the Guardian more regularly, David? I do read the Guardian regularly. I'm sorry to tell you, I read it on. I read the on. Maybe the online diff- version is, is the defective. online has it all. You get everything I, I, online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the onus is on you to put forward an alternative model. Well, I am. That's what I'm trying to do in the book: is to start to talk about. Let's it. leave it here. We'll, we'll never leave the studio. Um, okay. Uh, let's part that discussion. David Harvey's book, The Enigma of Capital, is out now. Leave your thoughts in the blog at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. And finally, the general election campaign has become all about Thursday nights, when all three main party leaders do battle in the first ever TV debates. The last debate takes place this Thursday evening, and the theme for the night is economic affairs. Now, we're meant to understand that we're due for a new economic model. At least, that's what the party leaders keep talking about. Larry, what, what is this new economic model that they're all talking about? Well, you might have heard about it. I've not heard about it at all. All I've heard about during the campaign is whether we should cut spending by £6 billion <laughs> to pay for lower national insurance contributions. I think the level of inter- economic debate in this campaign has yeah, been... Yeah, but they're, they're all talking in various ways. We've got to do things differently greener, save more, all the rest of it. Well, so I mean, there's, there's, using this word, well, there's been a model. bit of that, but it's been incredibly sotto voce. I mean, it, 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 so none of it meets up to Professor Elliot's No, that. not at all. I think, I think to the extent that, that they are talking about it, they're paying lip service to the idea of a new economy and that uh, I, mean, I sort of agree with David that underlying the entire uh, campaign here and, in, uh, and the political situation in the States is business as usual. I mean, you know, the politicians know that they, you know, they intellectually they sort of think, well, maybe we need a bit more manufacturing and there's a sort of, big, sort of green agenda out there that we'd like to know a bit more about. But essentially, the, 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 it's not been fleshed out at all. Industrial you know. activism? Well, have you heard much about that during the campaign? No, I Peter yeah. Manson started off talking a bit about it, when, didn't he? What's he said? 
Well, you said we've got a green investment bank. We're putting money out. Yeah, so the Tories, Tories have, have plans for a green investment. They've all got well, then they're all up for a new yeah, but economic they're, But they're model. not really talking about it. Oh, they're not really talking about the big issues that affect affect Britain. I don't think. Julian, all our politicians are intellectual pygmies, and they can't handle an economic model. They are politicians responding to the public demand, and I and I go back to the point that the public are not calling for this, and so politicians won't. Now, politics is a balance of leadership and uh, representation. I don't think anybody's. Uh, emerged brilliantly for this campaign on issues. I think it's been tangled up in personality, it's been tangled up in guilt, it's been confused in data. It is not a a, a moment of clear discussion about the future. I think no election ever is. I think what matters is that the winners have an idea of what they want to do with their victory. I think it's asking an awful lot for people to explain a new economic model in the four weeks of a campaign. I suspect over time, whoever wins this election will do things differently. They do understand some of what went wrong. They didn't really like the way it was before. They just thought it worked. Everybody had sort of assumed that the golden egg would keep laying and they could ignore economics. And I think they're very embarrassed about that. Whether they've worked out what the future is, of course they haven't. I mean, nobody's worked out what the future is. It, there isn't an obvious, straightforward argument for anybody to put. Two things strike me about this, though. I mean, you said that the, 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 the public is not interested, and I think that really raises some interesting questions as to why the public is not so interested. But the second issue is, I listen to this campaign, and it's like the rest of the world doesn't exist. It's like, it's like everything can be determined inside of this little island. And, 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 the, and you mentioned earlier they're scared of China. Well, what are they going to do about the China trade? What are they going to do about I mean, what are they going to do about their positionality in relationship to the, the European Union? None of that comes in. It's kind of all kind of just like somehow or other a parochial debate. And you kind of say, that's not how the world is. David, let's, let's end this uh, discussion with you. You're the theorist. You tell us what a new economic model should look like. A new economic model would uh, be one of zero growth, of redistribution of resources from the rich and including rich countries to poor countries, a, a radical redistribution. And it would also be one which clearly distinguished, as some United Nations reports are doing, between growth and development. In other words, Quality it's possible, life. yes, it's possible to, to talk about the development of human capacities and powers and improvement of quality of life without growing. Now, the argument in the past is you can't redistribute unless you have growth. Well, where have we redistributed out of growth? We haven't done it, and we never have. And, and the poor are, quite, quote, always with us. And, and we're again and again told the solution to the poverty problem is more capitalist development, which is, and it's capitalist development that creates the poverty problem. So I'm arguing that we should be really thinking about an anti-capitalist model of economic development. And it's not impossible. Major things can be done. I mean, for example, uh, I'm not, look, I'm not going to say I'm a great fan of Mao, but look at life expectancy under Mao. It went from about 34 when he took power, and when he left power, it was closer to 60-odd. Look at infant mortality in China under Mao. In other words, you can do a lot of things without necessarily going down the growth path. So my new economic model is a complete departure from the way in which we currently do business. Okay. And David Harvey will be standing for election in a constituency near you. But you'll be able to follow the real leaders' debate and get all the latest reaction at guardian.co.uk forward slash politics. That's it for this week's programme. Thanks to The Guardian's Julian Glover and Larry Elliott and Michael Tomaski over in Washington. And thanks too to Professor David Harvey, whose book The Enigma of Capital is out now. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. 
This podcast was produced by Annie Duckworth. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.